maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve, and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – and we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. This week we look at Britain's hidden rivalry with America in the Middle East in the aftermath of World War II. Daniel is the producer of this week's podcast. What's in store for us today? Well, today we've got James Barr, who's an excellent historian of the region. And you guys might remember he wrote a great book that was very popular a few years ago called Lines in the Sand. It was very successful. It was about the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which divided up the Middle East between Britain and France. And he's got a new book out called Lords of the Desert, which, as you said, deals with Britain's secret rivalry that took place over a period of 25 years over the Middle East. And who's he speaking with? He's speaking with Catherine Philp, who's a diplomatic correspondent on The Times. And why was it a secret rivalry? Is there any new information that he's uncovered? He has. He has got a lot of incredible access to new materials, new source materials from ex-MI6 spies, senior civil servants on the American and the British sides, and a lot of new stuff that a lot of people haven't seen before. As it turns out, the special relationship between Britain and America back then may not have been so special. Great. Well, this definitely sounds like an episode for those history buff and political nerds like us in the office. 
If you enjoy our podcast or indeed don't enjoy it, please do give us some feedback so we know what you guys, our audience, think. Review and rate us on iTunes. It also helps other people to find the podcast. Now let's go straight to it. Hello, I'm Catherine Philp and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with James Barr, historian and author of The Lords of the Desert, Britain's Struggle with America to Dominate the Middle East. The The Lords of the Desert comes after your other very successful book about the Middle East, um, which was about the carve-up of the region by Britain and France at the end of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and, and beyond that, I think that most of the people listening to this will know lots about the Suez Crisis and what that did for Britain and American relationships in the region. But this larger narrative that you've talked about, about this intense rivalry between allies in the Second World War and then subsequent allies in the rules-based order afterwards, I think has got much less um, play. And we and we think of America as, as having, you know, we allied with America in the Gulf Wars and stuff. But you're really talking about quite... Um, quite a bit of rivalry in the region, which I felt was best summed up by this um, Enoch Powell quote you use at the beginning, um, <clears throat> which was to Anthony Eden in the late 40s, uh, saying, I want to tell you that in the Middle East, our great enemies are the Americans. Uh, Eden admitted in retirement that he had no idea what Powell meant, but remarked years later, I do now. Yes, Exactly. And that's the thing. So that's what fascinated me about this story, because we think of Britain and America as being in cahoots all the time in the Middle East. The the, the great Satan and the little Satan, as the Ayatollah Khomeini put it. And obviously, he said that in the in the 70s, um, and since then, repeatedly. Uh, an event since then, whether it was the Gulf War in 1991, or, or the invasion of Iraq in 2000, 2003, tend to back that idea up that when it comes to the Middle East, it's Britain and America side by side. But if you go back 60, 70, 80 years, then suddenly you start finding quotes like the power one, which is what's so interesting. Mm -hmm. And it's not just him. There's other people saying the same thing. So you might say, well, Powell was certainly somebody who, you know, you might regard with a pinch of salt. And, well, indeed. <laughs> uh, but I mean, actually, the thing was, so the thing with Powell was he had served in the Middle East. He, he, like a lot of other Tory MPs, had spent time in the Second World War in Cairo. Mm -hmm. And that's quite important mm -hmm. when the Suez crisis comes later. And he'd also witnessed the uh, conference between Britain and America, between Churchill and Roosevelt at Casablanca. And there the tensions were exposed. And Powell had seen that. So he was talking about this actually from a position of some some knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just him. If you um, you read a book by Richard Crossman, the Labour MP, mm -hmm. uh, which was published in 1946, he says as well, the great danger to our position in the Middle East is the Americans. And then on the other side of the fence, the CIA officer, Kim Roosevelt, said exactly the same thing. And he was writing in 1949. And he said, remembering back to what he'd seen in the war in Cairo, there were times when the British were trying to knife us and, and we were doing exactly the same back. And his conclusion was, actually, in the Middle East, Britons and Americans get along rather badly. <laughs> so that was my sort of starting point yep. to try and rewrite this and to, to look again at this. And as you said, I wrote about this, uh, another great power rivalry between Britain and France in A Line in the Sand. And again, that wasn't, it was better known, but it was still not very well known. The mm -hmm. details of it were not well known. Uh, but it does strike me that when the, you know, you take allies into the Middle East and they fall out. And so in a way, that was the, <laughs> that was where I was starting from. And there's an awful lot to back that idea up. 
And did you start out from the position that you were going to write the next chapter of it? Or did the rivalry itself come first? Um, I think the next chapter, because as I finished the research for that earlier book, I'd already started spotting files where there was stuff redacted. And it was clearly MI5 listening to American politicians when they were traveling or, or intercepting their mail or something when they were traveling to Palestine. Because by the end of the Second World War, in the, in the late 40s, Palestine was a big issue in, in America because Britain's policies there were unsupportable really mm. and so uh lots and lots of american politicians went to go and see the situation for themselves uh, the british tried to stop some but weren't very successful doing it but as they went there we were listening in on what they were they mm. were saying uh so i thought that was rather interesting well take us back to the 40s and uh, in fact i it's even before the second world war had ended it was when the war in the middle east had ended so 42 um, and previously, it had been uh, a, a British domain. Um, imperial British imperial power was strong. What brought the Americans into it? It's a mixture of things, really. Uh, commerce was the important thing, uh, but also ideology. And the two things fused rather <clears throat> conveniently. Uh, so at the end of 1942, uh, or well, in August 1942, a man called Wendell Wilkie arrived on the beginning of a round-the-world tour. And people nowadays will barely know his name. But in 1942, he was very famous. He was, he was a rather familiar story, this. He was um, a businessman who'd come from nowhere to seize the Republicans' nomination in 1940. Um, but unlike Trump, he lost. He lost to FDR. And FDR, seeing him as still someone who was a th potentially a threat, sent him on this round-the-world trip to sort of promote American war aims. And Wilkie arrived in Cairo and didn't like what he saw at all because... He talked to uh, British officials who clearly had no concept that, that imperialism was a, was a kind of dying concept. And he was pretty appalled as well by the squalor that he saw. Mm. And those two things really triggered a, a pretty allergic reaction in him. And when he got back to America after this 49-day tour around the world on a, in a converted bomber, he made a great speech. He made a, a radio broadcast where he said that you know, the era of colonialism is over and we should not be fighting um, essentially to keep sort of unfree people in that situation. He didn't mention Britain by name, but, you know, throughout that broadcast, the comparison he was making was between America and Britain. So that was the ideological... So that was the ideological thing. to colonialism that, from which America was born. Exactly. Yeah. And the man who followed him out very soon afterwards was a guy called James Landis, who had been a trust buster in, in the, um, the first Roosevelt administration in the 30s. And... He then became sort of America's sort of, I forgot, I think it was economic, economic coordinator in the Middle East. Anyway, he saw the, empire, the British Empire essentially as a giant trust. He saw it as a kind of closed system where the British were taking raw materials out of the empire, making them up in Britain and then selling them back to these, this captive market, if you like. And rather as he'd seen the big, uh, the big companies in America in the 30s, he now came along to try and split that up. So he mm. arrived in 44 late 43, with this mission to try to sort of undo um, the system that the British were hoping would enable them to keep control after the war. So that was an anti-protectionist move? Or a it, it was a bit of both. American it, trade? It was pro-American trade. The, the, the Americans were very worried that at the end of the war, when their factories stopped producing tanks and, and guns and trucks, uh, what were they going to do? Was there, there was a danger, they thought, that there would be another depression. And they were desperate mm -hmm. to avoid that. And so one of the things they started to look at was where in the world can we sell stuff to? And the Middle East looked like a good market. There was plenty of demand, 
pent up. These countries had built up big um, dollar balances, so they had they had dollars to spend. Uh, they had uh, you know growing middle classes and and things like radio sets and stuff like that. You know, America was the natural manufacturer of those sorts of things. So it was really in the in- Americans' interest to sort of bust this open. Mm-hmm. And oil. Mm. Next oil. So I mean, if it was, if it was empire that the Britain and America clashed over, first of all, oil was the, sort of the next issue. And so from immediately after the war, that was that was the point of contention. And um, Britain had been. Was was at that moment really the dominant oil producer in that part of the world because it ran it, the British government owned Anglo Iranian, which had a monopoly on Iranian oil and produced three quarters of a million barrels a day. And then through Anglo Iranian, it had a the British government had a stake in the Iraq Petroleum Company, which, despite its name, had nothing really to do with Iraq except for the fact that that's where it did most of its business, and it channeled oil out from the oil fields around Kirkuk to the Mediterranean, so westwards, uh, avoiding the Suez Canal and all the tolls that that incurred. And the Americans from the 30s had Aramco, which now, back in the news, this the world's biggest company, was then this... Or so m- we believe. <laughs> so that, yeah, it depends on whose valuation you uh, you uh, you trust. But um, let's, assume it, let's assume it is. Let's, yeah. let's buy the propaganda. Uh, at that point, it was a minnow. It was it was absolutely tiny by comparison. And the Saudi oil market had had they'd only found oil in 1938, which was what a good 30, 30 years after Anglo Iranian had started producing in in Iran. And it was yeah, it was a baby. And most of its oil went eastwards at that point. And that market had been disrupted by the Second World War when the Japanese took over the Far East. So that was the big issue. So the Americans wanted to reorientate that. They wanted to get Aramco to start fueling Europe's recovery. And that's where the trouble started because that involved building a pipeline across the desert to the Mediterranean as well that was going to compete with IPC. Mm -hmm. And the pipeline would have to cross several different countries. They toyed with different routes. At one point, they thought it might go through what became Israel, then still Palestine, maybe Egypt, but that wasn't going to work for other reasons. And eventually, they settled on Jordan, Syria, Lebanon. So the pipeline would start on the Gulf Coast, and work its way northwestwards through these countries. So they had to get permission from all those countries. And they got it from the Jordanians, they got it from the Lebanese, but they couldn't get it from the Syrians. So they decided to, they overthrew the Syrian government in 1949 or helped a man called Husni Zaim to do that. And along the way, they burst through Britain's plans as well, because the British at the same time in all those three countries were hoping to build a sort of post-war sphere of influence mm-hmm. that would protect their position on Suez. And so Kim Roosevelt, the sort of the ace spy, is is the key man in this. And he went and at a time when the British government was denying this plan, but was secretly, secretly working on it, he went and had a conversation uh, with a British diplomat in Amman in 1947. And uh, he managed to winkle out of this man the details that, yes, indeed, the British were supporting it. And using that information, they were able to, to break open the plan. Um, so the British and the Americans were hiding secrets from each other hmm. as they vied for control. Even at that stage, yes. Hmm. And Roosevelt couldn't, res- he couldn't resist um, bragging about it afterwards. He was pretending to be a magazine journalist and he wrote for Harper's Magazine. So he wrote a piece in Harper's Magazine describing how unidentified American officials had seen the light and, and managed to stop this 
British plan from happening. But he then wrote a book about it, beautiful, um, it's a little book which I bought when I was doing my research. But the story is really camouflaged. So you have to take the book, almost take it apart and get, get the story back in the right order to understand the significance of what he was doing. And that's one of the things I enjoyed about, about writing. Well, and let's talk about that, where you got some of this material from, because I understand some of it wasn't previously known or, you know, there were gaps that you managed to fill. So um, tell me, what was the most interesting new material you found? How did you find it? Were you, was it what you were expecting? Were you looking for some missing jigsaw piece uh, or, or did it all come as a surprise when you find, found those things? I was certainly looking for a missing jigsaw piece. Mm -hmm. The problem that I had had, or that I had, was that whereas with The Line in the Sand, I had used freedom of information quite easily to open the relatively few files that were still secret. This time round, with anything post-1945, it's really tricky. And I was putting in the requests and they were just bouncing back, no, we're not giving you this stuff. So I was looking around for something new. And in 2014, I found it. I went to the Middle East Centre archive in Oxford. And there they had the diaries of a man called John Slade Baker, who was the Sunday Times' special correspondent in the Middle East. Um, but and, and the diary is enormous. It, it's about 14 volumes and it runs to 3,000 pages or so. And it's a mixture of handwritten and typed up stuff, which he'd written either at the time or relatively soon afterwards, I think. But the weird thing is, I think because the diary was so big, no one had ever tried to read the whole thing. They sort of dipped into bits of it, but no one had started at the beginning. And the funny thing was that if you did so, you realised that very quickly that he was also working for MI6. And that becomes... Another one. <laughs> another, another one. The only one, surely. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and and so and so that was is a fascinating story about how he's tailed by by the Egyptian um, secret police. Right, this is 1952. So he covered the diary covers 1952 to 1960. So it's really interesting. He's I mean he's a great he's a really good writer. It would be an interesting document in its own right, just as a because because he had um, good access to people like Nasser and to King Hussein in Jordan in particular. But he met lots and lots of different people, and the conversations are good and and it is possible to corroborate it. So it's. It's a really nice source. But because of this extra secret dimension, it's really, really interesting because it helps you understand what the government, the British government, was trying to find out. Also, and what, what they were trying to hide. And what they were trying to hide. Subsequently. And what, yes, exactly. And then, and also what, what this one person, who I assume was a pretty good source, judging by the, the, the other sort of information I managed to glean, what he was telling them. So there's some fantastic stuff that shows, for example, that uh, in the run-up to Suez, that, that the Egyptian government was telling Slade Baker, uh, telling him as a journalist, but off the record, that you know they, they expected that in the event that Britain and uh, Egypt came to blows, that the Egyptians would just give up, just like that. And he had the, he was talking to the head of the armed forces, and he said, oh, we will, don't worry, we will win. You will win. Don't worry, you will win, was uh, Amaz's um, uh, was comment Was that a double him. play, do you think? Uh, it's... It's possible. It is possible, but I don't think so. And I think um I think that, you know, he was getting he was getting some just some quite some some good stuff. What's interesting is that of course he was also writing for the paper at the same time and one can't help thinking that actually the reports in the paper are relatively bland by comparison because all the good stuff has been taken out and sent secretly to London. But um but you can't help thinking that the politicians actually paid more attention to the reporting perhaps than to the secret stuff that was coming through. But all told, it's just the most amazing source and it's not been well tapped. I've used 
a lot of it in the diary, but by no means all of it. And there's there's plenty more for people to, to get their teeth into. Great. And you also used State Department files, which were very recently released. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, in 2017, the, the State Department released the, the latest lot of files to do with Iran in the 50s, and in particular to do with the Mossadegh coup. The coup. So in 1953, <clears throat> it was well known, although the British government still denies it, uh, we and the Americans conspired to get rid of Mossadegh, the, the Iranian prime minister. From our point of view, it was revenge because he nationalised uh, Anglo-Iranian and, and thus deprived of us of our, deprived of us. <laughs> he had deprived us of our biggest overseas asset. Yeah. Uh, but for the Americans, they were concerned that he might be about to dump a whole load of oil on the world market and depress the price both in America for the domestic American oil producers, but also Aramco depended on the price being high, not not being not being low. Anyway, so the the uh, State Department have released this stuff. It's a thousand pages or so. It doesn't add a huge amount to what we know through other sources as well, but it has got one really interesting thing in it that I caught my eye. And that is that at the end of 1951, the British were conspiring to break Iran in two. Mm. And what had happened was the oil fields in Iran are in the mountains in the south, and that is the tribal area, essentially. And during the end, or at the end of that year, by the end of that year, British um, intelligence officers were going into the mountains to meet the tribesmen to talk about whether they might break free of Tehran's rule. And the Americans got wind of this. this is, the reason we know about this is not because of the British files, which don't mention this, but the American files do mention this. So the Americans worked out what was going on and they were horrified by the, the idea. Mm. At that point, they thought it would still be possible to reach some kind of negotiated deal. And so they kiboshed it. Uh, and and that was that. So so at that point, the sort of the, the one idea the British had to try and deal with this forcefully was was off 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 the um off the menu until fifty three, mm. when the circumstances had changed mm. and and, uh, and a, a conspiracy was possible. I think you paint in the book that um, the the coup, the joint coup, the, the sorry, the British and American backing for the coup in Iran was actually a rare example of working together. But around that, there seemed to be, as you say, the British were trying to split Iran, which wasn't something the Americans wanted to happen. And did the Americans want uh, Iran to nationalise Anglo-Iranian? Did they want to deny the Brits that? It, it seems like there was a lot. It wasn't an absolute joint effort. It seems like there was a lot going on still of, of pushing and pulling between the two powers. The, the key, I mean, the, the ultimate American interest was to break into the Iranian market, which they successfully did because the 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 company that was created after Masada had gone had American involvement in it, which it hadn't had beforehand. So the Americans had always seen Iran as a sort of you know British monopoly that they wanted to break into. It, it's it's a complicated story, but in 1949, when uh, the question of whether the British would offer the Iranians a better deal first came up. That was definitely as a result of American pressure. The Americans had just given the Saudis a much better deal, or at least it looked better. It wasn't as good as it claimed to be, but it was better. And that, and they did that knowing that that would put pressure on the British and knowing that the British would not be able easily to match that deal because the two companies were very different. Aramco was a private company owned by American oil giants, but a privately owned company uh, that 
that paid dividends to its shareholders, whereas the Anglo-Iranian company was the British government, just as an oil company, effectively. So the money that it made was, a large chunk of it was going into the Treasury's um, coffers. Mm-hmm. It's about sort of 100, probably something a bit more than £33 million a year at that time, at a time when the annual budget of the NHS was about £250 million. So, I mean, not that so, but, you know, a significant amount of money that the British government couldn't afford to lose. So when uh, the Iranians approached the British and said, give us a better deal, the British looked at the numbers and went, no, we're not doing that. Mm. We're not doing that. And they thought they would they would be able to uh, stave off the pressure. Now, lest this all sound like um, poor little Britain getting squeezed out of the Middle East, there was one episode which I thought was... Um, very interesting, and I was not aware of. Uh, let me take you back to the 40s. Um, the Middle East Supply Company and uh, the Brits' exploitation of something called Lend-Lease. Can you describe that? Yes, the Middle East Supply Centre. Uh, there's a book about it, a thin book, which I read so that you didn't have to. <laughs> it's it's a really <laughs> arcane subject. But in it, and it, it arose out of the circumstances in the Second World War. In the war, the Mediterranean became too dangerous for merchant shipping to get from Gibraltar through to to Port Said. And that was a big issue because at that point, the the Middle East generally wasn't um, uh, self-dependent. That's what I mean. Um, It it basically was a net importer of food. Self-sufficient. Self-sufficient, that's it. Um, It wasn't wasn't self-sufficient. So it was a net importer of food every year. So... There was a problem. If the, if the people of that part of the world weren't going to starve, then they had to come up with uh, a better way to do things. So they created this thing, the Middle East uh, Supply Center, to ration shipping. And because these kind of questions start to delve, it suddenly starts to delve very deep into the economy of the country's concern. Before long, this center was essentially uh, trying to improve agricultural techniques, controlling all kinds of things like transport. It ran a locust control mission that had the powers to go wherever it wanted in the Middle East in in search of locusts, trying to eradicate them before they um, laid eggs. And so that was going to be the kernel of this this British plan to hang on because the British thought, well, if we can keep these wartime controls... Mm -hmm in operation beyond the end of the war because we'll just we'll come up with some grounds to do this we can control we can keep american imports out and we can essentially turn this into our our own little place and they so they they came up with the idea of sort of redesigning the the, the um the the uh the thing and 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 inviting local cooperation so it become a sort of council a bit a bit like the eec i suppose in its mm-hmm. its early days that was a sort of similar sort of idea at the same time coming back to lend lease what the british did was they were obviously receiving lend lease uh from the americans but they were then using it to buy favors with the local <laughs> governments uh and also to improve their own oil facilities because the refinery at abadan i think at that point wasn't turning out aviation fuel couldn't do that, and yet they needed aviation fuel. So they used Lend-Lease money to essentially improve their own assets. So they were using American money to build a means of hanging on to the Middle East and keeping the Americans out. And a group called the Five Senators worked this out. They came in 1943 on a, another round-the-world trip, and these guys, they had been sent out by Truman. Before Truman was president, he was famous as a, a guy who got a Senate committee that was uh, tasked with... 
are rooting out waste in the war and trying to do things more efficiently. And Truman sent these these guys off on a, on a, on a round-the-world trip. And they arrived in Cairo and they started to get to the bottom of what was going on. And the first thing they saw was that the British were just very well organised. Mm. Interestingly, it wasn't a case of America feeling all-powerful at that point. They got there and they thought, well, our operations here are a shambles compared to the Brits who seem to have they've got a plan they know what they're doing and they are funneling this money in a way that will reinforce their relationships and, 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 and preserve the status quo. And they went back to the States uh, uh, at the end of that year and, and reported. And the report was in the, the proceedings. They went back into the Senate and they actually they held, I think, a secret session because the, the proceedings were so inflammatory. The conclusions were so inflammatory. But they were mainly inflammatory because they were criticising their own, their own people. But the British assumed that this was criticism of them, which it, it was in part. Uh, and that was the point at which FDR put a stop to all that. And the, the Americans started doling out Lend-Lease directly to those governments to stop the British from, from getting the credit. Um, and the other great um, defining issue of this particular of this time, of course, was Palestine and the fate of Palestine. And it's, it's interesting having sort of been at various events recently to discuss the 100th anniversary um, of the uh, Balfour Declaration, to see it cast in, in the way you did as a rather more cynical uh, decision by the Brits um, to have this sort of buffer, a Jewish buffer uh, for the Suez uh, Canal area. But it was, of course, uh, probably by the 40s, there were quite a lot of people in Britain who didn't think it had been such a good idea. Um, the Americans, however, were very supportive of the foundation of a Jewish state. Uh, and this became a, a flashpoint. And it did become a flashpoint. That's right. Really, because uh, by the at the beginning of the war, the British had imposed really tight immigration restrictions on Jews wanting to leave Europe. So there were, I mean, Jews could get out if you had enough money. But the thing that was actually stopping them largely was was the, the fact that Britain had said there can only be 15,000 a year for the next four years. And those permits were issued. And, and if you didn't get a permit, then you weren't coming. And that was for fear of presumably the combustibility yeah, of the... that was exactly... There, there was a legitimate fear, which was that, firstly, these people might include um, fifth columnists whose, whose job was to try to uh, incite trouble in Palestine, but really just that actually those numbers would, would of their own uh, of their own accord, cause trouble in Palestine that the British would then have to try to, to um, deal with alongside fighting a war. So there was a, it was justified up to a point, um, but it went down very badly. And the place it went down worst was in the United States, because once it became clear um, that the Nazis were systematically uh, exterminating Jews in Eastern Europe, mm. then the question of why the British weren't letting in Jew, letting Jews get this, the Jews who could escape escape became a really poisonous political issue, and it was one that no American president or FDR certainly didn't wish to confront, and Truman didn't wish to confront after him. And it's Truman who's particularly important because by that point, by the time he became president, the war was almost over, and then it was soon over, and he was always very conscious that he hadn't been elected in his own right until. 1948 when he when he was and the first thing that he faced was the new york mayoralty in the end of 45 and of course that's a city with more jews probably at that point than in in much of the rest of the world five i don't know there were five million jews i think in the 
the whole of the US at that time. So fewer than that in New York, but a huge Jewish population. And he was very, very sensitive to to the sort of the, the, the humanitarian side of things as well. But but also politically, he didn't want to lose an election. He didn't want to he didn't want this first test to to run against him. And so he put the uh, the pressure onto the British and told them that they needed to let in a hundred thousand Jews quickly. And there were perhaps a quarter of a million displaced people round Europe at that mm. time. A lot of them, well, they were a mixture of people, but a lot, a good number of them were Jewish. Maybe more, more than a hundred thousand, but not many, perhaps many more. But he wanted to see them in, get, come into Palestine. The Brits didn't like that at all. Again, they still thought that was going to uh, um, fuel um, a crisis there that they would have to deal with. That they Given would have that to do they it. Were British troops, exactly, yeah. because the British and, and they, the Americans were very, very uh, all along the way. They said this was a problem that the British would have to deal with. They, it wouldn't be something that the the Americans would 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 fix. So the British thought, well, well, hang on, you're asking us to do this, but you're not going to stand by us when we have to deal with the consequences of, of this policy. Uh, so that created, yeah, a very a very very difficult situation, and the British resisted it sort of tooth and nail all the way, uh, but the Americans kept up the pressure because. It was it was politically a very powerful issue there, not just and not just with uh, the the Jews living in the states. It, support for Palestine was very widely spread amongst evangelical Protestants and also the black community who recognised an underdog when they saw one. And so it, this was not a policy that, that that had narrow support. And successive politicians, you know, would refer to the Balfour Declaration and come back and say, "Look, this is." This is, um, you know, this is what you promised and this is what must must happen. And did you get a sense in the course of your research that there was any um, acknowledgement of the tensions that uh, allowing a, a large number of Jewish immigrants into Palestine could cause? Or was that just with the politics just made people shut, shut their ears to that? On the American side, I mean. Yes. Um, there wasn't really. And the reason is, the reason for that is interesting. A lot of people by that point had absorbed a, a bit of a myth, but they, they felt that if Britain left, the actual people who lived there would be able to get along. Mm. It was the British who the were actually state. Yeah. Were, were causing the trouble. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And there were plenty, because of, of course the kinds of people who actually espoused a binational state at that point were incredibly reasonable people. And one of them was a woman called Henrietta Solt who uh, had moved to Palestine when she was a um, very young lady. And by that point, in, when, when Wilkie met her in her 80s, uh, and she sort of taught Wilkie through this as he went through Palestine on his round-the-world trip. She said, you know, we, we, can, um, we can all get along here. And Wilkie put that rumour to her. He said, you know, is it true that some power is sort of making the situation difficult here, meaning the British, but without, again, without mentioning them. And she said, yes, I'm, I have to say, I'm afraid it is true. I have to say, I, I struggle to find real evidence that the British knowingly, mm. uh, you know, encouraged tensions between the two. Certainly British policy sort of seesawed as they tried to hang on. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a, a very cynical reading of it. But so the problem was that back in the States, this idea developed that if you took the British out of the equation, that would solve the problem. Uh, and a lot of people had very, very limited um, experience of the situation on the spot. So Wilkie spent a day there. He spent a Friday there. And one of his successes, one of the five <laughs> senators, <to> <laughs> two of the five senators came 
uh, went on a on a sort of side trip to go and see the situation. And one of them said afterwards, I said, I'll see if I can get the wording right. But he said, I I think um, he said something like, like one day is uh, isn't enough to make you an expert, but two days is too much or something like that. <laughs> so he had a very clear idea of the ideal length of a political a political trip. So you're dealing with people who would then go back to the states and say, I've seen the situation. I've been, you know, I've seen Palestine and I've seen this, but on you know on a pretty thin understanding of the situation. Great. Well, we'll take a break there. If you've made it this far into the podcast, you're obviously enjoying it. So please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes so that more people can find out about the Intelligence Squared podcast. And now back to the show. Um, James, welcome back. Um, one of the things that struck me reading the book was just the sheer scale of imperial shenanigans by both the British and the Americans as this was going on. Um, and I just wanted to ask you how you felt. I, your book stops in at 71 when Bahrain got its independence. Yep. Um, and previously the departure from Aden. And that sort of ends the end of an era for the, for the British. But I wonder how you think all that sort of interference in the Middle East plays out these days. And we know that Iran still calls America the great Satan and Britain the little Satan. What does the rest of the region think of us? I think I think that's absolutely true. I think there is this legacy of interference. Uh, I mean, if you go back into the, the earlier period before this, uh, the, the the British, the Anglo-French period, uh, and ask people in the region about the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which was the deal in 1916 to, to split the Middle East between Britain and France. You know, in Britain and France, maybe one in 10 people has heard of that deal. Mm. Uh, and, and yet, if you go to not even the countries it directly affected, but the neighbouring countries like Turkey and Egypt, the British Council did that. They did a survey, I think, in about 2014, and they asked exactly this question. And it's sort of six and a half, seven out of 10 people have heard about it because it's it's on the national curriculum as a sort of yeah. kind of piece of, you know, Im- imperial treachery. I think it's, I mean, it's difficult. Obviously, the, Brit- the British were heavily involved in Egypt through the early 50s. They were one of the, the, the they were the power behind the throne and manoeuvring successive governments and the king in their own interests. Um, the Americans got into the Levant once the pipeline was there and were very keen to to shape politics there. Uh, and the British were still the powers behind the throne in Iraq up to 58 when the Hashemites were overthrown. And that does leave a, it leaves a long legacy and it means that people... I think, you know, people see conspiracy rather than cock-up whenever they see, whenever they see events now so to take a recent example assad was very very keen early on in the um the uprising. syrian mm. uprising to sort of you know to detect foreign mm. foreign mm. foreign hands and you know i don't know exactly to what exact extent that was true at the point when he first made that allegation i think you know since then it's quite clear that syria, true, yeah. syria has become a free for all mm-hmm. for many different countries uh, but at that point, I'm not clear. But the fact is, this you know, it speaks to this kind of um, paranoia, I suppose, which is borne out by historical facts. There is there is a basis beneath it, which is that these countries have been fought over um, for a long time. Not just, but not just since Sykes Picot. You only have to go to Syria and see the architectural, you know, the the the, the archaeological heritage to realise that you know, particularly northern Syria has been a battleground for 
4,000 years. And people have been fighting over it, you know, ever since, mm. yeah, sort of the beginning. Of and that's geography, time. isn't it? That's and that's geography. It's because it's the corridor. I mean, particularly Aleppo. The Euphrates is the main route between the, the east and the west uh, of the Middle East or, or was, um, you know, in antiquity. And Aleppo is such an important trading city because of where it lies. It lies at the, the point where the Euphrates, between the point where the Euphrates gets closest to the Mediterranean coast. And that is why Aleppo is there. And that is why people have clashed over it repeatedly over that time. So, uh, so yeah, going right, right back into the distant past, you know, there's evidence that this part, particularly of northern Syria, has been fought over for for thousands and thousands of years. But if you come right back up to the recent history, to the 1950s onwards, you know, it's clear that the, the evidence from then reinforces that kind of that grand narrative. Uh, and the British government still keeps secret uh, sort of files on Syria to do with the attempts that it may, made to overthrow the Syrian government in the 50s. It tried at least once, twice to to get rid of the Syrian government in 1956 and then 1957. And that stuff is all still absolutely secret. You have to look elsewhere to find find the evidence of what was going on. So that part of the Middle East being the, the part that was fought over for longer, I suppose, as a trade route and the route between Europe and India, places like Saudi Arabia were, well, <laughs> deserts. Um, but... but, but you know, in all senses of that, they're absolute backwater, not really. Uh, Yemen being different, but of course, because of its uh, importance on the coast trading. How did oil change the map of the Middle East and, and where mattered? It moved the the, the sort of centre of gravity eastwards a bit into, into that oil-bearing region. The Gulf had mattered to the British from the beginning of the 19th century because it was the waterway that that took you from Basra through to India. Mm. As you said just now, it was control of the route to India that mattered. And whether that was the route that went through Suez after 1869 or whether it was the route that took you through Aleppo and across country and then down the Euphrates, that, those were the, the routes that mattered. And British policy from, you know, from the beginning of the 19th century was to try and keep other powers out of that space. And that was where Sykes-Picot then came in in 1916 with you know the French and the Russians being the powers that Britain wanted to keep as far away from from India as possible but oil began to change that what it did was it meant that in british calculations it wasn't simply that the middle east was a, a crossing point it wasn't simply a, a case of area control but actually it became important in its own right uh, and it mattered particularly for the british after the second world war because the british government had got no money it was bankrupt or near enough. It owed everybody loads of money, um, whether it was the Americans for all the war loans or or indeed the, the countries they'd been in, involved in defending. So, I mean, Britain owed Egypt vast sums of money because we bought stuff on credit during the war. So we owed everybody money. And, and so control of the oil became really, really important because Anglo-Iranian or IPC generated um, oil that was priced in sterling. And that was... It was more valuable than gold because mm -hmm. actually we didn't have much gold but if mm. we had oil that was priced in sterling the british government could always print more money to to buy that oil okay it might trigger vast inflation but they could do that mm -hmm. and that was why that was so so important so the middle east sort of assumed this this important role 
it had been important already. Oil was important, you know, from the moment in the, the 1910s when Churchill said, let's shift the fleet from coal to oil. But it became really important when in, when Britain became this kind of semi-bankrupt, you know, supposedly victorious nation in 1945. And that also put Britain and America on a on a collision course because, of course, uh, well, for, for, for another interesting reason, which was that the, the the concession in Saudi Arabia or the borders of Saudi Arabia, Arabia had never been defined. Mm. So King Ibn Saud had given the Saud, uh, given the Americans the oil concession in 1933, and they'd started to exploit it in the area uh, on the coast, just. Um, uh, near Bahrain, but they'd never they'd never explored further south. But by 1945, the American, the oil geologists thought there was oil right in the south of the country, uh, and that begged the question about where the frontier lay. Because although Ibn Saud had said you can drill for oil within my frontiers, no one knew where those frontiers were. Mm. And in fact, they mm. just petered out, and the, de- the desert moved. The empty quarter was just shifting sand, and so there were there was no way of, of setting a frontier. Across the other side of the desert, on the south side, the Sultan of Muscat and the Sheikh of Abu Sheikh of Abu Dhabi had all given concessions to Anglo, um, well, Anglo-Iranian subsidiary IPC. So there was a, um, immediately the kind of the the, uh, the basis for a conflict because British mm. geologists were trying to push their borders northwards, whilst the Americans were trying to push them southwards, and this all came to a head in the fifties with a conflict over an obscure oasis called Baremi. Uh, which was actually, initially they thought there was actually oil beneath it. But in fact, what was more important was that there was water there. It was the place that you needed to occupy in order to be able to mount oil exploration in Mm -hmm. that area. That's what made it so important. And it was an old, basically an old point on the slave route, uh, among other things. So this was really, really important. And in the 1952 or so, the Saudis just decided they were going to occupy it with significant American backing behind them. And they then sort of uh, embarked on this attempt to to bribe the people of the area to sort of bring them into Saudi Arabia. Now, I mean, actually, Baremi today stands on the border between um, Oman and the UAE. So we know that that attempt didn't succeed. But the reason it didn't succeed in large part was due to a um, the British who came in in 1955 and just decided that they would solve this problem by booting the Saudis out. So they sent in armed an armed force mm-hmm. uh, in October 1955 to to, to get rid of them. Um, the Goon Show did some did a <laughs> skit called the Bra- the Bramy Affair, I think, which was on it was on the radio within weeks of this happening. Wow. <laughs> um, one question that. Has been it's constantly addressed is it, why the Middle East sort of takes up so many of our headlines these days, and is it just an intractable problem? It's just going to sort of you know bubble on forever. Does it does it have to matter? Does it have to be? I, I remember an Economist cover once just saying the Middle East doesn't matter. Let's just forget it. Um, is it just always going to be this area that takes up half the foreign section in any newspaper, or is there um, you know is the, is there a sort of standing reason why it needs to matter or could it just become quieter <laughs> it's that is a it's a really good question and you can't <laughs> help thinking there's a sort of dog in the manger attitude that because it's been important mm. it will people continue to think or oh, we must you know they've got it i must i want my chunk of it and i can't help thinking that part of that's true particularly when you start to think about how 
uh, well, all kinds of things, the internet, energy, uh, you know, solar energy or, or, or uh, renewables or shale in the US are going to change where, you know. Yes, I mean, people kept why. saying oh, fracking will mean that, that the Middle East won't matter anymore because and, there'll be oil. And I think that's, I mean, that is certainly just true. Just about oil. That, that certainly means the Americans no longer have to worry to the same extent about the, the you know, what how much supply is coming from the Middle East. But those those issues change because the, the Americans were the big supplier of oil back in the, the the early part of the century. And then they suddenly started to worry that their stocks might run out and they needed to conserve some. And then the Middle East became important again or became important to them because there was billions of barrels of oil um, beneath the sand. But now you see it swinging back again. But there must come a point, I suppose, in a bit where the Americans start to run out of shale oil and therefore they'll start to look again at now, whether by then we've finally got on to using some some other kind of energy or we've found some other source, I don't know. But then, I mean, Saudi, if it can't make money from solar power, I, I don't know. <laughs> but, I mean, I think that the geography... Geog- to try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But the, 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 the geography does still matter. And it's, it matters in the context of oil because the, pipeli- the pipelines are still yeah. an issue. And a pipeline is invariably a political project. And it, this is why I think this part of my book has... It's a... It's a 70-year-old story, but it has huge contemporary relevance because whenever you're building a pipeline, you have to consider the, you know, the, the, the stability of the countries it travels through and, uh, and so on. And that was the case with the tap line in the end of the 1940s. But, you know, you hear now there were various pipeline projects mooted in Syria before the war. The Qataris wanted to build a gas pipeline that, that, that came out there. Assad said no, but he was keen to have a pipeline that came from Iran. So effectively, like a sort of iron umbilical cord that linked him back to one of his major sponsors and would ensure that the Iranians had a vested interest in keeping him on the throne mm. in, in Damascus. So there's these sorts of these sorts of things. And those pipelines work because of geography. And so the geography that means that, mm. you know, there have been 10 important battles within 100 miles of Aleppo in the last 4,000 years is the same geography that says this is the natural route for a pipeline running east and west. So there's certain things there that they they can't avoid. But I, I do, you know, I, I wonder, as you say, whether if you took out those things, if, if the Middle East was no longer a, a, a big energy producer, mm. whether would we still be fighting over it? Would we still, because we don't need to travel through it in the same way that we did, you know. Mm. Well, um, I, I, Russia clearly thinks it matters or, or whether that's part of a large geopolitical struggle. I mean, we're looking at, and China's got things going on, um, trade routes, one belt, one road. Um, we've actually almost got more Paris coming into the into the struggle for the Middle East right now than we did at the time of your book. Exactly, and I mean one of so one of the interesting things uh, I was reading a book by Diana Dark the other day about um, a merchant in Syria, and one of the things that so her merchant came from Homs, uh, one of the, the the big cities in Syria. Archaeologists have found. Um, it's material from Homs that dates back, I think, 2,000 years or so, which has got Chinese silk running through it. So mm. these places, going back to your point about the One Belt, One Road mm. or the Belt and Road, you know, these have been on, they've been literally on the Silk Road for a long time and, and that interest is coming back again. So there's, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely interest in that, uh, you know, in that kind of thing. With the Russians, I don't, I don't know. I sort of feel that their interest is slightly more opportunist, and I've seen that built out since then into a sort of. They have almost strategized a purpose for this intervention 
<laughs> what sort of retro retro engineered their strategy which let's face it a lots of us have, have done in, in at times in life but i i sort of my sense was that they got in there because they because they saw an op- they just an opportunity to to frankly give themselves some leverage in in world politics yes. again which they felt yes. they hadn't had but they probably also can see exactly those same geopolitical uh things that if they can control um root energy routes running through there in the same way that they're trying to do with the Nord Stream the pipeline, pipelines. Yeah, yeah. You know, there is a strategy in that and it's it it, it gives them a, a reason to, to hang on. Equally, perhaps that's the reason why the United States has got people in eastern Syria, which is of course where all the Syria's relatively small but but their oil fields are. That there's, you know, there's a reason for them being there. I'm sure they claim it was because ISIS were there. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they would, but there might be a reason why they would stay beyond. I mean, I think reports of ISIS's death sound a bit premature, but mm. it might be a reason why they would stay on there, if only to deny it to others. So mm. it's yeah, it's pretty cynical, brutal politics. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of cynical, brutal politics, um, uh, it would be remiss of us not to address the Saudi. American relationship today and current events going on with the disappearance of a prominent Saudi journalist who is also a U.S. resident. Um, Donald Trump has got very close to the Saudis. They seem to have got him on board very much with their um, anti-Iranian coalition, Um, but they're facing something of a crisis. So I wondered if you could talk about, I mean, because you chart sort of the beginnings of that relationship with the gift of the Aramco concession from Saudi to America. How has that relationship evolved and where is it going? This is a really good question. I'm actually trying to think through this myself <laughs> at the moment. So these, Could you do it out loud? Yes, I might have to do it out loud and it may be slightly unformed. But let me, I mean, let me try to think. Just to, I mean, to recap, I mean, the deal always, the deal from the 40s onwards was that... Uh, America supplied arms to the Saudis in exchange for oil. The, the Americans didn't actually want Saudi oil, but they wanted the Saudi oil in Europe. But that was the deal. It was arms arms for security. I mean, as you roll on, though, it becomes more complicated because obviously there's other sources of oil have come on stream. So, I mean, I can't see that Saudi oil itself is as important anymore. Uh, but the Saudis, the Americans... The Americans decided at that point that that essentially Saudi security was American security. They mm. made that decision in the in the forties that having thought that early, yeah. that early on, mm. and they and the original reason they did it was to do with Russia. Uh, maybe I'll get away if I talk about the history. I can get away with avoiding the uh, uh, avoiding <laughs> the, the current prediction. Um, but the Dharan, the airbase mm. uh, in the oil fields, was really important. Basically, the reason there's an airbase there is it's a big limestone plateau. It's the only place around there where you can you know you can um, have a runway for very heavy aircraft, in particular bombers. Mm. And in the late 40s, by the time the Cold War had started, the reason the Americans were so desperate to keep this was because it was the closest airbase for them to attack southern Russia, where all the sort of big, the industrial heartland of southern Russia was. And the airbase was on, very cleverly, the Saudis had got it on a three-year lease. So the lease was constantly coming up, even more frequently than in an American presidential election. So they were ne- the Americans were never able to really give the Saudis any particularly tough messages about... Mm how they operated their finances, the sort of state of human rights in the kingdom. All these sorts of things were always just withheld because they just wanted to keep the base. And eventually it was turned over to the Saudis proper in, I think, 1962 or something like that. 
But you sort of sense that, in a way, even if that direct relationship has, or that 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 particular issue has ended, that that sort of that kind of general way in which the relationship went on at that point has mm-hmm. sort of carried on. That the Americans never re- have never really um, applied the same sort of moral concerns, perhaps that they did to the British. Whereas, you know, with the, with the British in this story, that they were quite prepared to say that empire, empire was, was out of date. <laughs> uh, they weren't so prepared to, to do so with, with the Saudis. Um, mm. And, you know, I mean, that's partly because of the, I guess, I guess memories of things like 1973 and the oil, the oil, shock then and so on so i mean there's still oil is is a weapon I'd, I'd be surprised if the saudis are really willing at this particular moment when they're short of money ever uh you know anyhow to mm. start turning the taps off on their oil supply in a way that will just affect everybody mm. uh, but you know it's clear that they're pretty rattled by the way that um american politicians if not trump himself are, mm. are treating this this pretty horrifying incident if that's if if what's ha- if what everyone thinks has happened has happened mm. and uh, this poor man's been murdered then uh, then yeah i mean um, it would be interesting to see how well, how how trump is able to sort of steer himself through that and and obviously he seems to think that the saudis are still a good thing and he's got his own reputation on the line having been on a trip there and and setting uh, you know very encouraging things about them mm. um but also how the saudis get themselves out of this this knot as well because i can't really see them doing what one of the saudi papers was saying i think yesterday that uh, you know that they might even consider a sort of an alliance with the Iranians that seems to me to that, be that seems highly seems quite <laughs> unlikely to me um and of course you know that's they I suppose they 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 bank on that um anti-Iranian coalition to get away with what they want to do and I and that will be the question the question is does that matter more than this um you know egregious piece of violence uh in American calculations I mean, it's interesting that the commercial companies that were associated with the, the Vision 2030 thing have started to back away because they recognise that their you know, reputations yeah. are on the line. And so perhaps even if Realpolitik says that the US itself stays shoulder to shoulder with the Saudis whilst probably saying some pretty unpleasant things privately, the fact that the, the commercial companies that the Saudis depend on if they're going to make this this vision anything like a reality, if you you buy the buy the the sales pitch you know but the fact that these these um uh companies are vanishing is mm. seriously well, bad news a, for them it's sort of part of a shift isn't it that that's true of like, many regions many countries that more and more diplomacy is is about companies and businesses than it is state to state I mean, you think of trump pulling out of the paris peace agreement and and immediately lots of companies in the u.s saying this isn't going to make a difference we are still going to stick to those targets you know we don't want the freedom to pollute because the reputational risk is so great yeah that's so, a really good point I and mean, di- <laughs> diplomacy has got a, a lot more complicated and a lot Although more maybe subtle. we're to go just going back to the times of the east india company and when it was about companies doing these things yeah maybe i mean <laughs> but with but in, in some cases with i mean it's often you know they're they are looking at every, just as what they are like every company they're looking at their bottom line and what they think is what they think their customers reaction is going to be but um that can move you in in some moral ways as well mm. as um just money making as well indeed well, I'm going to wind this up on another quote from your book that I, I found very interesting, which is um, from the uh, from the notes of 
Harold Wilson's cabinet. I'm sure you know what I'm going to say. Mm. Um, after the Brits pulled out of Aden and Dean Rusk, the US Secretary of State, said, for God's sake, act like Britain. Somewhat ironic if uh, having um, tried to sort of get the Brits out of the Middle East for the previous two decades that they would then act like that when they um, got out of Aden. But um, this is this is when the cabinet decides that it's time for a decisive break in policies and that we should no longer adopt policies merely because the United States wishes us to adopt them. Uh, the friendship of the United States has been valuable to us, but we have often paid a heavy price for it. Now, reading that in the light of the Iraq invasion of 2003 is interesting. Do you think that Britain stuck to that? Oh wow, that's a that's a bouncer to finish with. Um, no, I suppose we we didn't really. Um, it is, I mean, it's it's the it's the big irony of the book. It's fascinating that that having clashed over empire and over oil and then over NASA as well, you know, um, and the the Americans at the beginning being determined to get us out of uh, get Britain out of the Middle East. That at the, by the end they were absolutely desperate to hang on to us. And Dennis Healy, there's another quote in the book which um, you didn't mention there, but. Uh, but Dennis Healy was very, very cynical about it. And he was defence secretary by the time this all happened. And he said it was because of Vietnam. They didn't want to be the, own, the only people killing brown people Ouch. on foreign soil or yeah. something like that. I and mean, really sort of excoriating. They wanted the British to be in there, you know, slightly kind of muddying the waters. But, yes, I mean, since then, we have rediscovered, a, you know, a, a new... Um, a new role for ourselves as as the United States' sidekick in in that part of the world. And I suppose, in a way, it took the end of empire to make that possible. Although the Americans wanted us to hang on, they were equally all the way very uncomfortable about how we were there. And by that point in time, I mean, the, the, the those vestigial bits of empire were extraordinary. This is the 60s, but you still had uh, British consuls on the Gulf Coast manumitting slaves and stuff like that. If a slave could reach the, the flagpole of the, the consulate, then they were entitled to go free and all this sort of... I mean, things that are... This is not long ago. No. Um, you know, so it was... In, I mean, perhaps that was a, a, a good ex, an example of empire working well, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, it was still, you know, this very, very old-fashioned thing and the Americans were very unhappy with it. But once you'd swept that away, once the British no longer had Aden and they'd cleared out of the Gulf and, and um, you know, new relationships had been established, um, not, you know, frankly, the Gulf, the Gulf Emirates did not particularly want us to go in that, mm. at that time. They felt very, very vulnerable um, uh, and they... Um, they didn't, you know, they didn't want us, didn't want us out. Even though at that point, of course, across the other side of the Gulf, it was the Shah rather than, you know, rather than um, the Ayatollah. But yes, but that created a new, a new a kind of set, kind of wiped the slate, if not clean, then certainly a new era opened where we found ourselves sort of back on the same side again. And I don't know the, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of that very recent story very well. Uh, but I struggle to find British, you know, the kind of British officials who are now retired who say that our relations have been anything other than pretty good with the Americans. And so there's this weird mm. disconnect. You know, you speak to people now and they say, oh, yeah, but the, okay, the special relationship may be overdone. But the fact is, we, you know, we have closer relations with the Americans than any other of our allies. And you find people saying that all the time. But you only have to go back a little bit further to find that things were very different. James, thank you very much. Thank you, Catherine. 
What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.